Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We begin with a stack audio based on an idea by listener Barry Hill. Are you ready for this, Mark? Hit me with it. Come on. And I suppose if it had a title, this title would be Neil Young or Not Neil Young. Okay. Neil or No you, Neil. That's right, yeah. yes. Right. So uh, we got five of them, and one of them is, is Not Neil Young. Okay, and the other four are song titles are you ready i am i'm pretty rusty on neil young outside the classic period but go on try me here we go safeway cart safeway cart the lone ranger and tonto fist fight in heaven the lone ranger and tonto fist fight in heaven terrorist suicide hang gliders (laughs) terrorist suicide hang gliders Let's impeach the president. Let's impeach the president. And finally, a rock star bucks a coffee shop. A rock star bucks a coffee shop. Which of those five is not the work of Neil Young? Over to you, Mark Allen. Wow. Well, let's impeach the president is Neil Young. I'm absolutely convinced. It is. It comes from his album Living With War, which came out in 2006. That's the one. And I think the the Lone Ranger and Tonto, I'm convinced, is Neil Young too. Well, there you'd be wrong. Oh, no! Oh, no! So confidently I have now fallen into the bear pit. The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Fist Fight in Heaven, is, is a book by Sherman Alexey, uh, a young Native American writer hailed by the New York Times as one of the major lyric voices of our time. I put that one in the list. I'm very pleased with myself. Very good work. <laughs> that sounded so plausible. So Safeway Cart is... It comes from... Terrorist with Suicide Hang Gliders is... It comes from Peace Trail, 2016. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a rock star bucks a coffee shop. Slightly heavy-handed, I feel, Neil. It uh, is. Comes, comes from the Monsanto years, 2015. So, thanks God, for that. I stumbled early there. Yeah, That's thanks, bad. There was a, somebody, idea. Les, sent in a thing on Twitter. I don't know if you saw that, about uh, what the oddest thing is that a band's ever been sued for. Oh, Did you right, see that? Yes, yes. I thought it was really interesting what he just said, because it made me think of Neil Young. And uh, he said that he thought the, the oddest thing was that in 2004, the Dave Matthews Band had tipped 800 pounds of human waste from their tour bus into the Chicago River. My God. Uh, and, uh, and this had landed, apparently, directly on top of a passenger sightseeing boat. 
<laughs> going through the city. Roughly two-thirds of the 120 passengers on board apparently were soaked. <laughs> so the huge court case, they were fined £300,000 had to make donations to, to charity. But he was saying, uh, Les was saying, has there been a stranger case? There was a case, wasn't there, of Neil Young being sued, wasn't there? Well, not where, making where, Neil where, Young. Yeah, or yeah where, no, he signed, was it Geffen, I think? He signed to Geffen and then proceeded to put out a load of records that you could argue didn't particularly sound like Neil Young, you know. Yeah. Well, I can't remember the names of those. They're trans and so forth, you know, yeah. that, that one where he was, he, he, he seemed to be singing through a speak-your-weight machine and um, <laughs> there are all kinds of other things. And so if, if you'd ponied up a fortune on the on the basis that he was going to turn out with, turn up with kind of like a hurricane or whatever, and then he he didn't. He produced a load of albums that weren't anything like expectation. And so there was there was talk of legal action. Uh, you know that that the company had an expectation uh, that if uh, if they signed somebody who's well known for for a certain thing, they would continue to produce it. And I thought it was quite an interesting case actually because it contrasts with the book trade. You know, for instance. So if you were you know, if you're the author of best-selling books, I don't know, if you're author of best-selling, you know, fiction, and then you suddenly decided you wanted to write some sort of polemical, polemical political book or whatever, they simply wouldn't publish it, would they? They'd say, I don't care who you are, matey. You know what I mean? This doesn't... Uh, this no, but it, uh, well, if they did, as a kind of charitable gesture to you and to keep a good relationship, they would put it on a different imprint or they would make a big song and dance about how it's a departure. Uh, like they, they might tell you to do it under a fake name. I don't know, but they, they certainly, they'd certainly get uh, get angsty about it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, like film directors, you know, known for one certain kind of thing, can't suddenly turn around and say they want to do something different, totally different, you know. People are known for certain kind of things. Anyway, that was the case with Neil Young. But wasn't there also John Fogerty? Oh, yeah, there was. was who was involved for years and years, 20, 30 years, with kind of running um, feuds with... Um, the guy who bought fantasy records, um, Saul Zantz, uh, who was a very successful film producer, and uh, and then he put out a record of his own on on Asylum, wasn't it? And it, and he was accused of plagiarising his own material. That's right. <laughs> you know, old mine down the road, I think it was. Yeah, but it sounded like Run Through the Jungle. I think yeah. that was. It was pretty it, much the same song, wasn't it? Well, yeah, okay, but you know. Tell it to Jimmy Reed, you know. Tell well, it to, precisely. Tell it to the Ink Spots, for goodness sake, you know. Yeah, entirely. Most musicians. Any 12-bar blues musician. You know? Yes, absolutely. It's all the same stuff anyway. Um, but, yeah, the Dave Matthews story, is that is that real or is that an episode of The Simpsons? The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. We were talking recently about the whole business and how um, records end up in soundtracks and films. And very often when the films are shot, they don't specify what the music's going to be because they can't be guaranteed that they're going to get it, you know. So you have all those... That's why all those scenes of people dancing in a nightclub or a disco always look really unconvincing because they're dancing to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> There's t- total silence in there. And that stuff will be put on later when they've actually managed to clear the music. Interesting exception to this, I noticed this week. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, the new True Detective um, cop kind of series. No, I've not watched any, but you said this is number four. They're, they're, very well, they're very well done, you know. They're very kind of gritty. This... One stars Jodie Foster as the kind of chief cop, and it takes place in the Arctic Circle during um, the months when they have no daylight whatsoever, which is quite a shrewd idea if you want to shoot shoot a series because you, you're doing it all in the dark, so they never have to wait for the weather to be right or the light to be correct. It's always dark. You know, they can shoot. You can the wrap the whole thing in about ten days. Anyway, the first five minutes of this thing entirely revolves around the use of one record and one record in particular. And you know what that record is? 
it's Twist and Shout by a group called the Beatles, which is, I think, is pretty amazing. It is amazing. Because, you know, it must take a few quid to to get a Beatles tune, you know, even if it's not one it's they not, wrote Well, themselves. again, it's not a Beatles tune, so it's probably a discount, isn't it, actually? You well, get the Beatles, might. but without the tune. Yeah, but you're still going to clear the Beatles oh, yeah. and so forth. And... Uh, but it actually it contains references to the Beatles in the script in the first five minutes, you know. So it had to be the Beatles. They had no other way of doing it, you know. So somebody stops the music at some point and says, I never did like the Beatles, you know. Um, I just thought it was absolutely extraordinary, you know, to be that specific about a record in a drama. I can't, I can't think of another example. Also, a great plot, uh, a, a great narrative moment to say to have somebody not liking the Beatles because they're in, they're in a really uh, free and frank exchange of, of views <laughs> will inevitably take place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good job I wasn't there, really. I know. But well, as, as you and I have, have, have often made absolutely clear, anybody saying they don't like the Beatles is simply occupying a position. Aren't they? <laughs> they don't mean it. They just want attention and they want to stir things up. Yes, can't That's... possibly mean it. That's Jodie Foster in True Detective 4, to a T. Anyway, uh, in other news, Danny Baker tells me his records are finally going at the end of this month. They're finally going. This giant record collection. He's been talking about getting rid of it for years. Wonder how in, many that is. Uh, uh, He's got rid of the singles already, hasn't he? Yeah, this is the LPs. They're yeah. going, they're going at the end of the month. Anyway, and he and I were were um discussing, if that's the appropriate term, on social media. The fact that... Uh, and Danny collects... His collection is pretty much 70s, 70s records, really. You know, I think, I think that's the centre of it. Um, we're discussing how even the most kind of, you know, apparently reviled and ignored records from the 70s, records that even, you know, deep-end record shop haunting bores like me and Danny even we had never heard of before, still seem to have some kind of following in in the new world of, of discogs and rare vinyl and repressings and all this kind of thing. And, we, and we've got some examples here that, uh, that I, stuff I'd never heard of before. Have you ever heard of a band called Red Dirt, Mark? No, no, you mentioned them. No, I had never heard of them, but the, the album goes for sort of 1,500 quid or something, doesn't it? Well, I don't know about that much, but, but it's amazing. You know, you, you look up on Discogs, even the record is as obscure and unloved as Red Dirt, you get comments from people underneath, you know. <laughs> people who obviously, they haunt Discogs, just saying to people, yeah, I've got that record. <laughs> That's what they want to do, you know. Yeah. So, Somebody, somebody comments here on uh, on Red Dirt. Great pressing. <laughs> oh, that's great. Things nobody ever said in the oh. 1970s. Great pressing. Absolutely extraordinary. But anyway, I was I was wondering uh, aloud on on Twitter. You know what were the what were those records from the 1970s that that were sat in bargain bins and nobody ever wanted at all. And now they appear to be, you know, they have some kind of following. And, of course, the obvious one is Fat Mattress, Mark. You remember Oh, yeah, Fat Mattress. Idiotically, I had a Fat Mattress album and I gave it away to somebody. Why did I do that? (laughs) Because, of course, Fat Mattress is very collectible. It has a member of the Jimi Hendrix experience. Member of the Jimi Hendrix experience. And, uh, you know... What do those records go for now? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I can't find the, you know... But there's, there's there's a... there's a, a kind of a vigorous trade in them, you know. Even though one of the comments here says, quite rightly, rather unremarkable late 60s psych, uh, which is a fair description. But anyway, I was asking on Twitter for people's other suggestions, and somebody suggested, I know you remember this, Atomic Roosters in hearing of Atomic Roosters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which can you describe the cover of that record, Mark? Can you can can you get I, that? No, I can't remember the cover. Okay. It's got a I think it's a Roger Dean illustration of a, of a kind of grandma figure with an ear trumpet <laughs> dealing with the sound, the distant sound of Atomic Rooster. That one was always in bargains. And the other one that I think Top Taylor responded, I asked about this. He said all the albums by Stray 
Do you remember oh, yeah, all stray. the stray? Stray. <laughs> very, very long hair. Incredibly long hair. Yeah. Had a record Rather effeminate looking. Had a record called Saturday Morning Pictures, um, which was always, always in the bargain bins. You know, because if, if something was always in the bargain bins, it tended to mean that somebody at some stage thought it was worth pressing a load of them and then they didn't sell. So you also get cases of this with better known acts. And I was trying to think about this this morning. Do you know what the, the Elton John... It's the John... Paul Young No Parley equivalent, isn't it? Well, no, it was no Parley sold a load of copies, a load of copies. Um, but there was Elton John record that didn't sell at all, I seem to remember. Caribou. Do you remember Caribou? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was also Rock of the Westies, didn't sell at all. You know, because they always came after Goodbye Yellow Brick Road or something that had been absolutely huge. So they pressed millions of copies, put millions of copies into the, into the shops. Nobody bought them at all. So Paul Kramer was pointing out to me also that um, the clash of Sandinista started with massive commercial expectations, which were not fulfilled at all. And so there were, there were copies of that cluttering up bargain bins all over North London and whenever that came out, 79, 80. There was... I tell you a record I found. I remember Budgie's albums often used to finish up in bargain bins. Oh, Budgie God. just were generally considered to be laughable. I had a look at eBay uh, this morning, and the first Budgie album, people are selling for 350 quid. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Never Turn Your Back on a Friend by Budgie is 180 quid. I mean, that's astonishing, I think. Well, they, they just yeah, the bedsitter images by Al Stewart. You know, people are selling for $195 in America. It's incredible. I just was idly going through some records I had, and I dug up one, which was which was uh, Dr. Dunbar's Prescription by the Ainsley by Dunbar Ainsley Retaliation. Dunbar. Admittedly, they were a bit bit fashionable at the time, but, you know, that's no, Mark, 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 I'm going to interrupt you. Despite your delusions, the Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation, I can categorically state were never, ever, not even for a second, fashionable. Oh, you, weren't they? You just thought they were. I just thought they were. because I In had your little record. world, because you had the record. I thought they were. They were oh never. God. Never at all. Have you got it there? I want to I've, see it. I've literally got I want it to right see by the machine. He's going to hold it up in front of me if he, if he can find it. Here it is. Uh, is it the one with the blurry cover? Yeah. It's oh, upside down. No, it's a hypnosis right. cover, actually. Oh, is it the really? Hypnosis cover, and there they are in in a kind of uh, infrared picture of them yeah. by a boat, I think, on a, on a, on the shore of a lake. That'll and, be uh, that'll be Poe Powell. Will have got himself infrared film. Andy Dumber, Victor Brox, Alex Dumachowski, and John <laughs> Moreshead. I thought they were sensational. So I've now discovered that's worth hundred and fifty quid. Is that amazing? I tell you, tell you what, I, what struck me. It struck me this week, actually. You know, we're now 24 years into the 21st century. And just the, the sheer passage of time has meant that all the records that belong to the 20th century suddenly seem like legitimate antiques. Yeah. Because they're, they're from a departed age, aren't they? Yeah. And they're sort of not making any more of them, you know. So... You know, they're, they're now, regardless of their musical qualities or properties, they've got the, you know, the appeal of kind of, I don't know, George's snuff boxes. They do, they have a, a pattern, <laughs> don't they? That's so true. And uh, Old and marble ashtrays, old, kind of, old, old tins. It's right, that, yeah. they, you know, that's the only possible explanation for the fact that Saturday morning pictures by Stray... Or um, you know, or Budgie's what do you call it? Never turn your back on a friend. Yeah, um, are still going for hundreds of pounds. I think it's bizarre. It's I mean, it's more bizarre than the idea that those obscure records that were just very rare are expensive. There's a record called um, "Dreaming of Alice" by Mark Fry, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's a minute. I kind of they only pressed about 700 copies. It was a psychedelic folk record, kind of made in 1972 in Italy, and that now sells for you know. £3,000. It's amazing. Just because it's a collectible item, I think. You know, The Garden of Jane Trelawney by Trees. Oh, know. that is very... Well, you know, that's a pretty standard price for that is 650 quid. Unbelievable. <laughs> but it's still something 
much more astonishing about records that at the time were considered to be laughably awful <laughs> and now collectible and, and been reconsidered as being classics. But you did, okay, but let's take this a step further. Do you think we have now reached the stage with popular music where you're not you're not sort of allowed to laugh at anything anymore? <laughs> we, you and I, have amused ourselves for years by you know picking on helpless pop groups and going, yeah. they're they're funny, they're risible. You know what I mean? You can, you know if you can't laugh at that lot, what can you laugh at? Yeah. And after we Uriah Heep being a great example, absolutely <laughs> the perfect example, and um, and you're kind of not allowed to nowadays because there's always somebody going to come along and say, actually, you know, they were much misunderstood and much maligned. Yes, in a slightly and, wounded register. That <laughs> you mean, my friends, you know, in some corner of a foreign field, we are here. No, but there Waving was some, our flags. No, but there was somebody who started a programme on six music dedicated to just this particular strand of kind of hopeless groups who were once on charisma or something like That's that. That's right. <laughs> you, can't, you can't have a good belly laugh at the expense of, of a pop group any longer, can you? Because all, they all become kind of objects of reverence. That's what, that's what I feel, anyway. Uh, no, there is, there is, we, we've talked about this before, that, that nobody is forgotten on the internet and everybody has a small following, don't they, rooting for them and uh, who've kind of rediscovered them and uh, well, exactly. the world to the end. I'm going to go further because thanks to the internet, they don't have a small following anymore because they have an interna international, you know, uh, multi-generational following, if they have any following at all. And therefore, the number of people, you know, rooting for Budgie nowadays is probably greater than the number of people. it was at the time. <laughs> back in the time. Because they were only they're only dealing with the people that they happened to, you know, encounter. Also, uh, doesn't it all key into our, our basic desire to support underdogs? Oh yeah. Everybody loves the idea of somebody's bit 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 mistreated. <laughs> Underrated, underloved, yeah. and they just want to. It's a sort of sense of charity, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But Burke Shelley, I think, uh, God bless him, the late Burke Shelley died, didn't he, a couple of years ago? I think would he be did. awfully he thrilled did. to think that he his did. records were three hundred fifty quid. There you I go. I don't know why, but this seems to lead me to to discuss uh, the subject of of the closure of Pitchfork, the the what is it? It's a media thing. The website, but it's magazine. a kind of music website, online magazine, isn't it? I don't know if it's officially been closed. It's sort of been wound into GQ, hasn't it? Is the idea? Yeah, for, I, for some reason it was owned by Condé Nast. It ended up being owned by Condé Nast, the publishers of uh, very high-toned, uh, you know, titles like Vanity Fair and Vogue and all sorts of things. And and then they're known for you know for being very good at high-end advertising. So why they had pitchfork, I do not know at all, because it ain't it ain't high-end advertising, really. No, but it would world. probably make GQ's advertising sell a bit more attractive because it's a little bit hipper. It's got a musical connection. But I mean yeah. I don't know. Anyway, it's been, you know, it, it's been merged into into GQ behind a smokescreen of uh, absolute corporate bullshit. Which I do recommend to you. It's sensationally you know? funny, isn't it? It's written, well, clearly not written by Annie Winter at all. Written by somebody on behalf of Annie Winter. Yeah. Anna Winter. It's got her name at the bottom because she's the kind of she's the editorial director or whatever she is. And um, you know that it's moving to, into an exciting new phase and all. <laughs> all those but, cliches that make you and I shudder. <laughs> and really uh, worked in the publishing business. But anyway, I mean, you know, some people have lost their jobs, which is it's very sad. And you know, there's the usual, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth about what's going to happen to music magazines and so forth. What's going to happen to music criticism? Which people, the interesting thing to me is, yeah, you know, I follow a lot of that debate. Debate, and it's now talked about as if it's kind of, is this some threatened little corner of the arts? It's as if people are talking about how do we preserve ballet or or poetry or whatever, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's this thing that, you know, 
20, 30 years ago as a massive great commercial engine, which is, you know, pop music and the the interest in bands and new bands and all their activities and so forth. And people are now arguing that it sort of ought to be protected. And I just can't see how that's ever going to come about. And the one thing that never seems to enter this debate, you know, people talk about, well, bands need coverage and all that stuff, and I understand that. And, you know, record companies need to do this and, and, and writers need a place to write and all this stuff. But this is only going to work. It's only going to be sustainable if there is stuff that people want to read. You know, and then the stuff that music papers, music magazines used to deal in was stuff people really wanted to read, partly because they couldn't read it anywhere else. And so... But all those things have gone, though, because that was reviews, really. That was news, and you know all that stuff, obviously, from other sources. Now, the, the thing that will protect certain elements of the music magazine uh, landscape is that fetishistic love of seeing a, 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 you know, a kind of time capsule re-entered. Mojo do it really well, I think. Those yeah, but that's beautiful paper. Layouts. That works on paper. Works on paper. Yeah, it works on paper, precisely. It doesn't work, it doesn't work online at all. No, not remotely. Yeah, because online has no context. You know, nobody goes back to a website and says, do you know what The Guardian Online was saying about Sanzo's yeah. album when it came out in... Do you remember this issue, The Guardian Online? Oh, it's classic. They don't do it at all. They just don't do it at all. Whereas they, they're constantly hauling out old copies of Smash Hits or Q or yeah. whatever and saying, look at this. Generally some review written by me in a hurry or whatever, you know, because they point to it yeah. on a bit of paper. It's in that time capsule. Material on the internet is not. It's just material on the internet. It has, you have no sense of when it arrived there at all. People don't read it with that sense at all. And also and, you don't get that sense of context, which is what makes music magazines interesting. It's the proximity of that piece alongside all the ads and the news stories and the other things that were on the page. That's what makes it work. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so... I mean, I, I, I think when the, the closures of these titles or the merging of these titles happens from time to time, which it does, I always think the same thing, which is if you're, if you're convinced that there's something in that title and that you can make something of it that the current owner's not making of it, go to them. Go to them. They'll do you a deal. They'll probably let you have it. They'll be thrilled to hear from you. Because they, they, it's they give just it to you a for problem. a pound. Yeah. You know, but I don't know. I don't know if anybody's ever tried that. But uh, I, can't, I can't help but think that they would probably say, fine, take it. I do miss the old, uh, the, 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 old the, the paper product music press enormously. I was down at the Rocks Back Pages office the other day recording a podcast, and they have bound editions of every Q and every Select and every Mojo and every Enemy and Melody Maker. Fantastic. Just a huge, huge library. And I kind of miss that time, don't you, that, that there was something there making sense of it all, making sense of the whole landscape. It was all divided up into the tribes, you know. There was the electronic stuff over here and reggae over there and there was post-punk stuff over there and you know, the big rock acts and the things on factory records. And, and the whole world was for these enormously ramped-up cartoon characters who were immensely entertaining. And I kind of miss that ability to make sense of it all. And also the, the, the perspectives that music journalists got from just simply spending time with pop stars, you know, off guard. And, uh, and you don't get, you very rarely get any of that now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Don't you think? Oh, no, you don't get it at all. I mean, I can't, can't remember the last time anybody said to me, oh, you've got to read this about it. This Chris Heath's Quincy Jones piece, I think it was, in possibly in GQ, I think, was the last oh, time right. I can remember everyone saying, you absolutely have to read this, it's astonishing. And that was one of those rare examples of someone saying, this is the, everything that happened to me in my life that's, that's controversial and funny and over-the-top and insane and involves somebody famous. It was fantastic. But no, you're right. Now, I think not, because everything's so modified, isn't it? And so so protected and so little access that you're not going to have much to say apart from that. They've got a new recorder. Or if they're going to say something, you know, they're going to say it themselves. They don't they don't need a kind of they don't need a media. Well, they prefer to say it themselves because then they can edit exactly what they say. Yeah, but, and... but but also and I think there are cases where it's quite legitimate for them to say it themselves. Because it won't get distorted, or it's no. less likely to. Exactly. If they do it themselves. Um, I, I don't have any problem with that, with that at all. But, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, wish the music media back into existence by, by suggesting that it's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that won't work. The only way people are saying support music magazines like the way they used to say support record shops, you know, you've got to go. But but people just didn't go to record shops because they'd stopped going to record shops. They weren't going to do it out of a sense of charity, were they? No, well, well, except they ended up doing it out of sense of kind of antiques. Yeah. You know, for the reasons that we've just been talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, with with the media, it, it... You've got to provide something that people really want, really, really want. And they used to really, really want the new enemy or the new Q or the new Smashes. They really wanted it. And and this was, you know, if these things didn't appear for any reason, industrial dispute or whatever, people's whole week would be ruined, wouldn't it? Mine you can't it upset imagine. the rhythm of life completely. I can't imagine that. You can't imagine people... I had to it, know what was happening at the Leicester de Montfort Hall, even though I wasn't in any danger of going there. But, but you know, if you translate into that, that into the contemporary world, even if, if, if something as big as Netflix disappeared for a month, the world would just shrug and carry on. Nobody would be terribly bothered about it at all because there's millions of things. There's millions of options to amuse yourself this evening, this weekend, whenever. It didn't used to be like that. You, know, you used to have a lot of time, a lot of time and not much stuff. Now you have unlimited stuff and not much time. Not much time. But back then, I can remember a copy of The Enemy arriving in the house and it just being passed from person to person who would virtually read it from cover to cover. You remember oh, that? Def- oh, definitely, definitely. I used to work in the H&V shop, and we used to, I used to go and get the enemy at the, uh, there used to be a WX Smiths in Oxford Circus Station, where it came, it was on sale on Wednesday, Wednesday lunchtime. It was like London travel point. Um, and I'd go up there a few times to get it, and it wouldn't have come, and then I'd go back to the shop. Then go back again half an hour later. Wouldn't have come. Go back to the shop. 
Imagine, imagine, imagine a human being, Mark. These in puppy the year, dog eyes. <laughs> no, no, Mark. Imagine, <clears throat> in a human being in the year 2024 going to that trouble for anything. I know. Nothing. Nothing at all. But I, I went back like three, four times, and then it would be there. And then I go back and we put it on the counter and we go, oh, God, Linda's father on tour. Or yeah. I, I don't know what it was. Look you know, what Linda Ronstadt's only got and done now. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the albums. And then and somebody would take it away and you'd come upon it in the stock room in the back and there'd be four of them sitting around smoking, drinking cups of tea and doing the crossword between Yeah. Doing the crossword. That's right. One across we... Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> no, it's probably a bit more difficult than that. Fred, be, yeah. Fred Della would have done it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, talk about simple pleasures. All gone. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Today, I think, the day we're recording this, actually, the 19th, is the, is the birthday of Robert Palmer. Robert Palmer would have been 75. Uh, but he, but he died when he was fifty-four, didn't he? I mean, very, very young of a heart attack. And I was just thinking about him, thinking that what an amazing—he's a huge star, wasn't he at the time? I mean, well, I but a kind of a medium-sized star. But but started off very slowly. Vinegar Joe, not terribly um, satisfactory. Well, I go uh, back, go back a step before Vinegar Joe. He was in a group called the Allen Bound. Oh yes, which had grown out of a group called the Allen Bound Set. Yeah. And uh, I think at one stage they had not one but two lead singers, and he was one. And Jess Roden, I think, was the other. Yeah. Uh, but then he turned up in <coughs> Vinegar Joe, um, playing opposite Elkie Brooks. Uh, you know, he was the kind of young, handsome chap in the in the scoop neck t shirt with the tight trousers. Usually, um, I think it was. Uh, I think there was an eye for the ladies, even in those early days. But brilliantly marketed by Ireland, wasn't it? I mean, they kind of just they set him up as being this kind of <clears throat> kind of immensely cool Casanova character. He was a, a terrifically good looking, and uh, and there's a girl virtually on every sleeve, isn't it? Of the, of the early well, the first, first three, the first albums. three, yeah, the first three. I've got me here in front of me, and they these all came out on Ireland. I don't know what year we're talking about, seventy four, seventy five, something like that, and they were terribly hip these records, and they were made with a combination of kind of New Orleans session men. Wow, yeah, 1974, wow. The Meters, people like Little Feet, wasn't it? Well, Little Feet and the Meters very yeah. often, and, um, you know, produced by Steve Smith, and really interesting kind of range of material, you know. Yeah. Sally from Through the Alley, which was a kind of Lee Dorsey tune, you know. Um, didn't they do Pressure Drop? But, yeah, Pressure Drop. They did. By Toots and the Maytals on one of those records. <laughs> I've got I've got the uh, Very Island Records. I've got the second cover in front of me, where he, there he is. I had to show Alex this earlier, and uh, poor Alex, uh, you know, he, he had to reach for the smelling salts because he's, <laughs> he had to stand he, on a square of cold lino. He's a young chap, but <laughs> he's not used to seeing sexually provocative uh, album covers. But here's Robert Palmer in a in a hotel room um, holding a, a very early TV remote control. And, and there's a girl, presumably his girlfriend, looking out the, over the balcony out into the outside world, having neglected to put her clothes on. No, completely. She's got her shoes on, I think. She's got I don't think on. anything else. Just her shoes. <laughs> She's got her shoes on. And then the third one, which is Some People Can Do What They Like, which I think is my favourite cover, actually. Uh, he, here he is actually in the act of playing strip poker. Strip poker. Not on his own. Not strip his own. poker, no. You see, hashtag different times. <laughs> Does anybody still pay, play strip poker? Strip poker used to be one of the most exciting things, ideas in the world, wasn't it, when you were in school and college, wasn't it? Wasn't no, it? I don't think I ever played it. Did you play it, Dave? Be honest with me now. Did you? I think there might have been. <laughs> wow. Well, I haven't thought about that for years. The long winter nights it, must have flown by. 
Well, you see, there was get a Robert think... Palmer album on. Get the cards out. Turn the heating up. All I'm going to say to you, Mark, is there were three channels on the television in that. Yes, three we made channels. our own entertainment. Three channels on the television. You had about forty records, so you'd have heard them all to death. And, you know, somebody had gone and got a Watney's Party Seven, uh, you know, and a bang of crisps. And, and after a certain while, what else are you going to do with the evening apart from play? Get the cards bus? out. <laughs> Get the kit off. <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily no, go. I've known you for whatever it is, 45 years, 47 years, I think. This is a whole new dimension of your character. <laughs> this is wonderful. Oh, I love it. You missed all this. You know, you were sitting in your in your student flat convincing yourself that, that you, uh, you're a follower of the very trendy Ainsley Dunbar Italian. That's right, I was. That's precisely <laughs> what I was doing. I'm wasting my time now, I realise. Absolutely. An idiotic. Yeah. So there's Robert Palmer on his birthday. And if you go, you know, if you haven't heard those early island records, they really are terribly good. They're really they, they do stand up terribly well. Um they are. And the records um, he made, some of the records he made in the 80s were really good too, actually. Well, Maybe. yeah. Then he had Johnny and Mary and so forth. You know, you're in my sister, bad case of loving you. Yeah. Johnny yeah. and Mary, they're great, brilliant records. Yeah, yeah. But those early ones, those first three. I would uh, I would thoroughly recommend. Yeah, film club. Film club is a new feature that we've. Uh, yeah, uh, and last week we were talking about because we keep up with all the latest films. And last week, we were doing um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde from nineteen sixty-seven. So this year, this this week, we come bang up to date with Casablanca from nineteen forty. <laughs> Is that 42 or 40? Which is on iPlayer. Anyone listening who has access to BBC iPlayer, it's on there now for a bit longer, actually. It's fantastic, isn't it? I rewatched it. it. It's fantastic. It's an extraordinary piece of work. And it's it's directed by Michael Curtiz, who I think we were talking about the other week as the hardest working director in uh, in the history of Hollywood. Did absolutely tons of things. And um, it's an amazing tale that it was... Um, it was an an unproduced play called Everybody Goes to Ricks, which is amazing. Yeah, it never come out, never been, never, never been never performed. Never been produced, never been performed. But some studio reader picked this up in New York and thought, it's quite good, and and took it to Warner Brothers and said, this is a good, there's a part in here which is good for one of your gangster stars. Of course, Warner Brothers' reputation in the 30s and early 40s was gangster movies, Jimmy Cagney and George Raft and so forth. And Humphrey Bogart was one of those gangsters. And so, you know, they decided they could do something with Humphrey Bogart in this film. And then they got in Ingrid Bergman. They had to borrow Ingrid Bergman, I think, from David Selznick's company. So she wasn't contracted to, to Warner's. And she was... Uh, you know, very beautiful, very poised, and also five inches taller than Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. <laughs> so he does the whole film in five-inch lifts. Yeah. Five inches. That's serious. That's a serious clearance, isn't it, from the yeah. ground? Never once do you see them standing together at any point. <laughs> Just absolutely fantastic. And... Uh, and it struck me that the, 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 the plot hinges around what I suppose is really is the equivalent of a text message, isn't it? He's at the station, you remember, and he's waiting for her, and they've agreed to elope. And the, 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 the Germans have just arrived. They've marched into Paris. And Sam turns up with a note, gives him the note, and he says, I can't make it, and I can't tell you why. And that the whole plot hinges around that one moment. Yeah. And it's got one of the best flashbacks I think I've ever seen in a film because when they meet him and, and also when they meet in the bar in all the gin joints in all the world, et cetera, um, you know something absolutely extraordinary has taken place between them. And when you go back to the flashback, he, he appears to be a completely different character. He's light-hearted, he's upbeat, he's relaxed and he's funny. And you realise that the relationship with her and the fact that she let him down and didn't come to meet him at the train has completely changed his character. Don't you think that that mm. kind of broken mm. personality, that that cynical, 
an untrusting person that he is. And then when they finally have that scene where they kind of make it all up again and the love affair appears to be rekindled, he goes back to his old self. It's fantastic, I think. Dooley Wilson singing As Time Goes By. Who didn't play the piano, did he? He didn't play the piano. The drummer. He was a drummer. drummer. Yeah. And, And so he's miming to the piano which is being played, another piano. Those other days. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't recorded track. Yeah. Like, let's have one piano here and then let's have another piano out of shot over there who is actually playing as time goes by or whatever. And Dooley is, is just miming along with it. But it's it, what I love about it, what I love about those kind of old 40s Hollywood films is we always think they're very sentimental. But actually underneath it all, they're very kind of... They're very worldly, wise, and hard-boiled and cynical. They are like, very cynical. You know, round up the usual suspects, <laughs> which is the, uh, you know, it's the the great line. Um, it the final line in the film is, "This could be the start of a beautiful friendship, beautiful relationship, isn't it?" And uh, him and uh, Renault, isn't it right? They yeah. only came up with that line after the film had been finished. Oh right. And so Bogart had come in. And just voice that. Wow! And so it's out of a shot, you know. So that's added. It's amazing if you read about it how Casablanca was done, because they were writing it and rewriting it absolutely all the time. They had like there's 16 writers or something like that, you know, um, credited. As how I'm it not works. surprised because there are there are lines that you really remember. There's one where he's pointed the gun at, is it Re- at Renault. He says, "This gun is pointed at your heart." He said, "That's my least vulnerable spot." <laughs> it's just so. There's your hard-boiled thing. Absolutely. And he says, to her, "Maybe you'll regret this. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But soon and for the rest of your life. But soon and for the rest. It's of fantastic. Your life. That's the a- other thing is that again, your your hard-boiled theory is that you're not quite sure at the end." whether they were both pretending to be in love with the other one. You know, is she pretending to be in love with him in order to get the visa so she can escape with her husband? Or, and is he pretending to be in love with her so that he can engineer her escape because he wants her to escape with the husband? But you can't tell. You'd like to believe that they were still besotted, but you just it's, it's all up in the air, isn't it? You can't really work it out. That's why we're still watching it after all this time. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. And we finish with our Patreon birthday boy, who's Paul Knox. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, David. Hi, Mark. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Very nice to see you. Happy birthday. And you've got a question for us. I do indeed. Um, It's just occurred to me that, you know, now when I look at television viewing, so it used to be that, you know, television programs used to get viewers of 20 million plus, and now they're happy to get 2 million. So the days of when everybody was watching TV is gone. And when you look back at the big musical uh, events, so the big rock events on TV, you know, are we now in a position to evaluate which are, were the really big events? So if you looked internationally, clearly the Beatles on out of Sullivan, but I was thinking more of the UK. And, you know, what were, what were the big events in the UK? Well, the ones from a, I can... From a TV perspective. The ones that we're talking about musical things here. I can remember the Beatles on the Royal Variety performance. Yeah. So that's, what, 63, is it? Yes, yeah, 63. 63. You know, rattle your jewellery and so forth. Yeah. I I can remember uh, the All You Need Is Love uh, yeah. broadcast, which is obviously black and white, which is, yeah. <laughs> reminds you how long ago it was. And I can also remember... Uh, magical mystery tour where everybody gathered with their families, worst possible yeah. situation, with their families to watch this on Boxing Day, which was uh, agony. It was it? agony because yeah. it was terrible, and oh, you knew it, and was, it terrible. was really well, was awful. And the press absolutely hated them. And finally, they were waiting for the moment when the Beatles put a foot wrong and they'd found it. And that was heartbreaking, actually. <laughs> it's funny because whenever people talk about the magical mystery tour now, and I do remember watching it, um, but people always say. Oh, and the, and the BBC's mistake was not putting it on in colour. Well, nobody had colour TV. Nobody had no, colour. No, they didn't have colour TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, there wasn't really an option there. Yeah. No. But the other, the interesting thing is that the, the ones you do remember were not necessarily mass audiences, but yeah. because you knew the audience who watched it. For instance, from the whistle test days, John Martin playing May You Never on the Elgro yeah. whistle test completely set 
the whole nation's view of what John Martin was forevermore, just on yeah. the basis of one appearance in front of well, the well, people who watched that kind of thing. But I think the old grey whistle test, which always stood out to me, even though I missed it, but everybody talked about it, was Beatloaf, which oh, made him right. oh, yes. enormous overnight. Yeah, definitely. That well, was huge. That was the ZZ Top, I think. I, I remember Beef Art particularly as being a big thing yeah. uh, for yeah. my for my gang. And also the Talking Heads one. And Judy Sill was fantastic. But just uh, sideways, another great moment, I think, was Beyonce at Glastonbury. Have you ever seen that? It's fantastic. Uh, no, I've missed that. Oh, astonishing. Well, it's all there forevermore, of course, nowadays. Yeah. And that's the other big difference. When you watched, you know, the Beatles on the Royal Variety Performance or any of these things, or even John Martin doing May You Never, you thought you were only going to see it once in your mm. life. So you yeah. watched it with a completely different head on. Yeah. We cannot imagine nowadays what it's like to see something believing you're never going to see it again. You yeah. know, you've got every fibre of your being yeah. is, is connected. Complete concentration. To that thing. Um, but do you know what is the greatest? I'm glad you asked this question, Paul, because I can now, you know, uh, tell the nation what is the greatest um, live performance mm. ever recorded by television cameras. You can occasionally find it on YouTube before it gets taken down, probably by Dave Clark's lawyers, because I think he owns the copyright. The greatest is Otis Redding, Eric Burden, and Chris Farlow doing Shout, Shake, not Shout, yeah. Shake, the Sam Cooke song, on Red Steady Go in, I think, 1966. You Honestly, if you can find that, it's absolutely mind-boggling. The dancers and absolutely everything. The level of energy is just astonishing, and of course, it, the amazing thing is, it does it doesn't overwhelm the TV delivery of it, which very often those things do. Very often they can be too loud for television. Television is quite a small medium, you know, mm. whereas the whole thing about a, a rock and roll show is a big kind of overpowering thing, and sometimes it's too overpowering for the small screen. But that is perfect. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, go I'll, and I'll look it. out there for that. I mean, funny enough, one thing I was only six at the time, but I do remember from Ready Steady Go was Chris Farlow and Mick Jagger duetting on uh, Out of Time. There you go. And there was yes. like a strange juxtaposition of J Jagger being all energy and Chris Farlow being the opposite. I don't know, it always stuck in my mind. Sadly, that, that is no longer available. Oh, well, but, it, um, keep looking, it may turn yeah, up again. Yeah. But one that stood out for me, again, for a smaller audience, was the Sex Pistols on So It Goes, because I think that was their first TV appearance. Yeah. And it was just something like you'd never heard before, and they yep. looked like nothing you'd ever seen before. And obviously, that is on YouTube, and you look at it now, and it looks relatively innocent. But at the time, that was a huge thing. Well, spend a, spend yeah. a happy day hunting around YouTube. It, there's tons yeah. of stuff. You know, it may go yeah. away for a while. It, it will yeah. return. Paul, thanks very much for joining yeah. us and for your question. No, my pleasure. Great thanks, to you. Happy birthday. Again. Happy birthday. And if, you, if yeah. you'd like to be like Paul and have your yeah. birthday marks on the Word in Your Ear podcast, go to patreon.com slash Word in Your Ear for details. Cheers. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs> 